If you haven't left yet, the topic this morning we're going to talk about is lust. So, wow, look what time it is. Um, okay. Uh, as we have been studying together as a community, this is now week four of a seven-week journey through the seven deadly sins. And um, so far we've talked about anger and some of the strongholds that that can have in our life. Envy for one week and greed on another week. And today we're gonna to talk about lust. And so I'd like to invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'd like to read to you a story from that. Um, as I turn there while I just uh, introduce some of the attention of the topic, it's kind of hard to narrow, nail it down in a sense. Um, and I did something courageous this week and I searched online the word lust. Okay, so that's something I'd recommend for everybody doing. But I had to do it. Uh, just to get a definition. I'd like to just get a definition out there of what's out there, okay? And it said, a strong sexual desire. Which made a lot of sense to me when I read that because growing up in the church, that seemed to be kind of the message that I was receiving as this topic would come up. You're not allowed to have any desire. And, you know, you, you just got to just pretend like you don't have a desire or don't have any desire until you're married, then you can have all the desires that you want. And nobody said that to me, but it just sort of came across that way. Like, how do you figure out this desire bit? Um, and so, yeah, there was a lot of different uh, ex experiences, you know, that I could share with you of confusion and conversations I've had with certain people over the years. And uh, I remember as a teenager going to a tent revival meeting with my buddies and there, that night, you know, having to be a night, we're talking about this topic. And... You know, we've kind of been a part of this sort of situation before. You, you know, you normally would get like a really well thought out statistical analysis of like what's happening in this world of the porn industry and how much money is being spent. And some, sometimes they would talk about like ratios about one in three people are doing this and that. And, you know, it's really convicting stuff. A lot of times it would be like, a, an, like an example or illustration involving glue and cardboard and duct tape and, and stuff that was, I mean, it is really, you know, that is a good convicting thing. And I don't, you know, want to tease anybody who was a part of that because I appreciate anybody who tried to bring this topic up. Um, but one thing I'll never forget is sometimes you get sort of like a memorabilia or a token, like sex can wait shoelaces or something, you know, to just wear. Actually, there was a kid in the 9am who had these shoelaces on earlier. Shout out. But I'll, uh, you know, you might get a ring or you might get something. And I, one time at that tent meeting, my buddies and I all received a laminated $1 bill. It was, and then the minister said, you know, this has not been in circulation. And so just to let it represent you not being in, in circulation. Um, assuming a lot. And we, I spent on a can of pop that night at the gas station and the attendant's like, why are you laminating your money? Like, this has to be some sort of felony or something. And I'm like, don't worry about it. It's a Christian thing. And we all talked about it. My friends, you can ask them this day, like, here's the scenario. You get married someday. You're supposed to save this for your wife or your, your husband. And, and this is the conversation. <laughs> this, this is how valuable I, 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 this is how valuable you are to me. I saved this one dollar <laughs> all these years. And I'm not gonna spend it on you. I don't, 
I don't know if that would translate the right way, you know? And so I just let it go. A lot of, a lot of times, like, um, when this topic would come up, though, you, you know, guys would sort of get a talk and girls would get a talk and there would be all kinds of dysfunction or whatever in our, you know, behind the scenes. Like, guys would get a slap on the wrist for doing certain things, but girls would get an extreme amount of shame um, for, for making certain decisions and... and I don't know, how do you figure this out? Like, how do you put a moratorium on desire? I mean, it can't just be sinful to have a desire. So we then started to, you know, look to the world. And wow, there's all kinds of different ideas of what to do and what not to do in the world. I mean, how do you listen to, to a world that claims to be amoralistic and, and just sort of you do you? How much dysfunction and devastation has happened in the world, in this, in this realm of something so awesome and beautiful, but being just treated flippantly. I mean, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? The world would fight so hard to have like sexual freedom and have all kinds of like, it's just such a big deal. But then it's actually treated flippantly. Which is it? A big deal? If it's a big deal, it's something that we have respect for. It's something that we treat with respect. It's something that you have um, boundaries for, you know, like a loaded weapon. It's not just something you play around with. You could do a lot of damage in this area. And we've seen all kinds of just nefarious and wickedness and, and, and slavery and all kinds of abuse that have happened in this area. What are you going to do about it? What kind of boundaries do you have? I mean, as you start to just track down this topic, there are things that just even people do with their phones and all kinds of just stuff that is commonplace, um, you know, in young people's lives right now. Where do you draw the line? Christianity has a pretty high view of sex. It's a high view because it's a, high it's a place of respect that you place it in. And we place it in a safe place. In the confines of a covenant relationship where you are as safe as you can be to be intimate with somebody else is a place of, of, of great fear for a lot of people. And so to place it in a place where you have trust and fidelity with another person and then in that place of wonder and beauty, that place, the family starts to grow and develop we got to be careful with this. Today I'm going to try and thread the needle a little bit. I, I, I want to I'm encourage you, and I want to remove shame, and I want to help, uh, help us steer away from certain things that um, could cause serious devastation in our life, which is why uh, it was led to the story uh, that I want to read to you today, the story of David and Bathsheba. So if you've come to 2 Samuel chapter 11, I'd like to read that to you now, if you'll stand with me. I'm going to read most of the chapter. Okay. In the spring, you know, the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the army and with the king's men, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David even got out of bed. And he walked around the roof of the place. And from that roof, he saw a young woman bathing. 
The woman was very beautiful, so he sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her. So she came to him and he slept with her. And she had just purified herself from her monthly uncleanliness. And she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send to me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah the Hittite came to him, David asked him, so how's Joab doing? How's the soldier, how, how, the, how the soldiers were and how the war is going? And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him, but Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah didn't go home last night. So, so he asked Uriah, haven't you come from a military campaign? Why don't you go home? Uriah said to David, you gotta love this guy. The ark and Israel and Judah are all staying in tents. My commander, Joab, and, and my Lord's army are, are, are camped in the open field. How can I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, Lord, I will not do such a thing. David said to him, okay, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David got him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants and did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of Uriah's men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. David and Joab have a back and forth about this. I'd like to move to verse 26. When Uriah's wife had heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After that time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done Displeased the Lord. Amen. And I always like to point out, when you read a story, and literally the very last word is the Lord. The very last person to be brought into this entire story is God. Not a good sign. So if you're unfamiliar with uh, the Old Testament, what we call it, the Hebrew Scriptures, um, essentially, this is a long story and a narrative about God and about man and, and, and promises that God has made to mankind to redeem them. All these stories of God working amongst a people group to bring them out of all sorts of slavery, and then lots of stories of men going right back into slavery and doing things they shouldn't do. And, and, and this back and forth happens as this grand backstory to the life of Jesus. You can't talk about the backstory of the life of Jesus without talking about this person in this story, David. He might be one of the most important person in the lineage of Jesus. If you don't know who David is, this is the same David that's a part of the story, David and Goliath. Believe it or not, 
this person that we just read, it, it, he's the shepherd king, this, this spirit animal of all underdog stories. I mean, he is like the guy that uh, we all just look to as the champion uh, of, of rags to riches. I mean, David also is a world-renowned poet and musician. As much as he's a warrior, he has written so many of the Psalms in our Bible, as well as one of the most famous poems ever written, Psalm 23. I mean, how many people over thousands of years have turned to that Psalm uh, for some sort of guidance and, and um, have connected with that? This is David. The whole story of his life, which by the way, is one, an unparalleled story in ancient Near Eastern literature and is the longest biography in the Bible, spanning from the end of Ruth, First and Second Samuel, into the beginning of First Kings, and, like I said, all kinds of psalms. This story completely changes at this chapter. It becomes sort of a hinge for his entire life story. And you never see that David uh, that we once knew after this. Now you might be sitting here thinking, great job, Dan. You just made uh, me think about this character I'll never be like. I'll never be a king. What, 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 why would I even read this story? I, I don't even know how to play the harp. And yeah, that may be true. But look a little closer at what is happening in this story because essentially this story is a story about abuse of power. Something that we all kind of had to figure out. I mean, David's life is a trajectory that is almost unanimously promoted in America. This upward mobility of becoming uh, promoted and, and, and getting kind of more resources and becoming the boss. Yeah, you might not be the king, but you might be the king of your workplace or you might be in a place of responsibility in your home. And what are you going to do with that power? I notice 11 times in this chapter, it says the, the, the Hebrew... He sent, just over and over again, he sent, he sent. This is what he's doing with his authority. Every single one of us here is a sexual being. And that is a responsibility for you to steward. No matter what age you are, this is, some, this is a responsibility that's given to you. And another word for responsibility is power. How are you going to steward that responsibility? This is a story about lust, but it's a story about using our responsibility in a way uh, that is evil. So the message that I just want to give to you today can be boiled down into four words if you're taking notes. The four words are this, lust takes, Christ gives. And I want to show you just a few takes uh, with the remainder of our time uh, of, of lust, of lust taking and what are the things that it takes from us number one thing uh, on the list here that I want to show you is lust takes humanity lust takes humanity I'll show you how this works you might have noticed in verse 2 David gets out of bed and he sees someone and he sees that she's beautiful and he sends to take her for himself so what essentially happens in this interaction is not somebody saying, hey, you're beautiful. Okay, that's fine. Acknowledge beauty all around you. That's great. When he decides that her beauty is now going to serve him, 
What that has done is he's objectified this woman. He has reduced her humanity to something that he can just evaluate through what he sees and he decides that's something that's gonna serve me. It's easy in our day to take vanity and equal value. What happens you know, here, as I'm reminded of the expression, what you see is what you get. And what's crazy is that tr- phrase is almost never true. <laughs> Especially if you're shopping online for cars. Okay, I see this all the time in ads. When they say what you see is what you get, that's a bad sign, all right? They're trying to hide something. Uh, a little tip for Facebook Marketplace. Um, we all know this. What you see is not what you get. What you see is the tip of the iceberg with almost everything. And the complicated, beautiful reality of somebody is largely beneath the surface. But we live in a culture that has pretty much convinced itself that what you can see is something that you can base your judgment about a person on. Probably because of the medium that we look through is often these tiny screens as we see pictures of people and evaluate if we like that or not. Let alone the person on the other side of the screen who's waiting for you to, uh, in all your judgment and discernment, push a heart or a thumbs up to put in that space of uh, value, the, the giant cave of value inside of our hearts as if it could fill it. Um, it's sad. How often we just use vanity to equal value. And what I can see, I'm gonna judge, I'm gonna make a judgment based on that. It's sad that David knows better. If you know David's story, this is like a whole story starts in the opposite way of this. He's a shepherd. The most important person in their nation comes to his house, uh, to his dad's farm. And as they've you know, arrange the table, the, Samuel says, I want to anoint the next king of Israel. And he goes around and he looks at all these sons. David was never called to the meeting. And he's like, where's the person I'm looking for? He's not here and I know he's supposed to be here. And they're like, well, you know, we do have another son, but he's obviously not the right pick. Maybe this is some of the verses, Psalm 27, when he says, uh, though my mother and my father despise me, the Lord accepts me kind of stuff. He comes to the house and Samuel says, what? I know what you guys think you could see. You could see somebody who's never going to be a leader. You could see somebody who's too young. You could see somebody who's not able to uh, process the complexities of this nation. But when you judge on the outward appearance, just know this. God judges based on the heart. Who do you want to be like? I mean, what if this church just started to say, you know what, I am not going to settle for judging based on what I can see. I am going to model my life after God and start saying this phrase over and over again. There is more to that person than what meets the eye. What if our world started to hear that from you? What would happen to their self-esteem? How would they start to see their story and value their life if somebody, anybody in this world would say, hey, I know there's more to you than meets the eye. What if for the rest of the month even, you just decided, I'm not gonna judge somebody based on just one thing that I know about them, one thing that I can see. I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna reduce their humanity to who they voted for. I'm not gonna reduce their humanity to what they look like. I'm not gonna reduce your humanity because you're standing on a street corner asking for change. I'm actually going to say, you know what? There's more to you than meets the eye. Lust will take humanity. All of that good 
stuff, our calling, our purpose, our backstory, our history, all the complexity uh, that we had to figure out between one another. And it counsels it all out. It reduces it to just something you can see. Lust will take humanity, but love will give it back. And you know how I know that? Because Jesus gave his life out of love for you and I. And that bill, his life given to me, communicates to me the value of each and every one of us. When he gave his life for us, he crowned humanity with dignity and gave it back and said, no, this is how valuable you are. You might not know that. You might not agree on that. But I want you to know you have immense value. And we are his followers. And when you love somebody in this world and take time to, to communicate to that to them, you're giving them dignity. You're giving them their humanity back. And lust will take it away. That's not the only thing it'll take. Lust takes our humanity. But the second thing I want to notice here is that lust will take away reality. It'll take you right out of reality. So Bathsheba sends word to David and says, I am pregnant. And David goes on a pattern, a path here to try and change reality, really. I mean, try to make it seem like this, this didn't ever happen. So David seeks to delete his search history here by getting Uriah the Hittite to come to um, you know, the city to wash his feet, to put it bluntly. Because we all know what that means. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that. It's a very modest culture, okay? So give him a break. Wash his feet. He wanted uh, Uriah to, to be with his wife so that then he would think that this child was his for the rest of their life, just living a lie. He goes under plan after plan to try and make this happen. And lust will do it. It'll take you right out of, into an alternate reality where we can hide all kinds of different things. I mean, there's so many different examples that I can think of of this. I mean, this is where extortion comes from. Bribery. This is where, we, you know, people start to say, you know, uh, what if people knew this about you? You know, we start to make a, I'll make it go away kind of story up, right? I mean, there's, there's even small ways where we can start to try and just delete things, erase things and say that never happened, Right? I'm living in a different reality. <laughs> and as I started to think of all the examples of this yesterday, it just broke down. As I started to think about it from Bathsheba's perspective, as somebody who's carrying a child. And I know that there are, over the years, stories of Christians who have pressured women who have gotten pregnant to try and, and, and to, to keep a certain persona, to keep up a certain per, uh, way of, uh, of, of looking to the world, to the things that we'll go to do to cover up the reality is so sad to me. The pressure that we put on each other to look a certain way, to keep up a certain appearance and, and to, to have a certain perspective, like, what are we doing to each other in the church? You're not free here. We try to hide so much from one another. David needs a friend. He's a real friend. 
He doesn't get a real friend until the next chapter when Nathaniel, or Nathan the prophet comes and, and, and calls a spade a spade. He's got friends around him right now who'll just do whatever he wants. And if, you, if you've got somebody who knows the truth about you and is just letting you do whatever you want, let me just make this really simple for you. Those are not the greatest friends. He needs somebody that will remove the pressure from his life. Are you the type of friend that somebody knows right now, if they needed you, they could call you and they could get a hold of you? Are you, are you the type of person that your friends just know? I mean, do you need to have a conversation with your friends this week? Just say, just so you know, I want to be there for you. If you're stuck, if there's something going on in your life that you just feel you have to hide from me, I want you to know I'm, I'm a safe place for you. I mean, if we can't fall at each other's feet and just ask for help, how in the world is, is anyone else in the world going to come to us for help? Not, not going to talk to those guys. I mean, maybe, you know, if you feel like your friends are pressuring you to perform, to be at a certain standard of, uh, you know, how you're supposed to look, maybe you need to have a conversation with them and just say, I just feel like you're pressuring, you, you know, this, there's so much pressure, I can't, I'm performing in this relationship. Because here's what might happen. They might respond to you and say, yeah, I feel that from you. Because sometimes when we perform for one another, we just start to, it just keeps doubling down. And we're like, we don't even know. Here's the thing. Lust will take you out of reality and try and put you into some exhausting image maintenance zone where you have to live up to a certain standard. But Christ is going to give you freedom. Because when I experience, what I know from my relationship with Christ is when I am able to be truthful and honest and come before him and just say, this is my reality. This is my, this is what's going on. You know what he says to me? He doesn't say, hide that away from me. He doesn't say, uh, that ruins our whole relationship. He says, I know. I always knew. And I got you. I am here for you. And I want to set you free. Didn't he say the truth is going to be a part of that? It's going to set you free. I want to be like Christ and be somebody in this world that, that if anybody knows me, they feel more and more free the more we get to know each other, not less. That's what Jesus is bringing to this world, a place of wide open space for people to be able to be free and be okay. A place of forgiveness, a place of, of repair and restore and flourishing. If you don't have that, I mean, at least seek to be that. If you don't have that with Christ, then come to him today and just say, Here's me. Do you see something that you can love? And I know what his answer is going to be. You don't have to hide. Lust will take you right out of the truth. It'll take you right out of humanity. And the last thing I want to point out is it'll take away life. You know, what he does is so sad with Uriah and he sends him into war and specifically gives instructions to have him defeated. And it's not like Uriah didn't mean anything to him. If you know this, uh, Bathsheba's dad and Uriah are both on the list of like 30 some guys called David's mighty men. He has been a part of relationship with David since before he was king. 
back when they were bandits, you know, like just trying to survive when Saul was seeking to kill him. This was a person who would at any moment for the last, you know, however many, 20 years, give his life for David. And David would let that go to cover this up and to be perceived as some sort of, (laughs) some version of kinsman redeemer uh, or whatever with Bathsheba. Now, hopefully, I don't have to, you know, make a one-to-one comparison to our lives here with uh, murder by proxy, right? Like, (laughs) have mercy. Uh, Don't do that. But um, we, we, we do, I think, have a connection to, you know, maybe letting something die, like a relationship, because of whatever choices we made, sometimes it just seems like it'll be easier to let that distance continue to grow between you and that person that once was one of your best friends, that once was so close and you know had your back, but you're so ashamed or you're so, uh, you, you know, whatever decision you've made, you're gonna let that die. I mean, ask yourself, like, is this sort of a part of any of your intimate relationships? If it's your spouse even, some of us, We'll let it go so far as to be like, I don't want them to know. I'm not going to deal with it. And, and you just become more and more lifeless in that relationship. Ultimately, it comes back to God. I mean, your relationship with God, is it felt lifeless? Is there something that you need to dig down deep and say, like, I am not bringing this out to you for some reason. And it's causing a big division between us. And the gap is getting wider and wider. Well, this will take the life right out of all your most important relationships. Turn to Christ today before, before you let it take humanity away, before you let it take you out of your reality and truth and into a place of lies, and before you become lifeless, just a numb person. I'd just like to give you just a word about what I believe about purity somewhat of a counterbalance to this conversation. What, what even is purity? What the devil doesn't want you to know about purity is this. If you believe in Jesus, you are pure. Purity is something that you have. It is given to you. Do not call unclean what I have called clean. There is a voice that's going to continue to condemn. It's going to work on you for the rest of the day and say, this is the highest uh, uh, value right now is that you know that you're guilty and that you're rotten. But the reality that's not as fickle as that, that, that we think, the reality that's not as flimsy as we think is that the blood of Christ has washed his children to be clean and the word is spoken over you. You are clean. Though our sins have made us scarlet, he shall make us white as snow. This is your identity. This is your reality. You are clean. And and you get to walk in that or not. You get to live like that's your identity or not. And that's the tension that we see in the New Testament. It says we got to put off our old self, put on our new self. Your new self is this. You are pure. You just got to receive that. You get to walk in this truth. And you get to tell any voice that comes against you, that's not me anymore, bro. This is who I am. This will be the word of your testimony. 
and the power of Christ's testimony coming out of your life where he is already working out of you and has put within you already his purity. What is Hebrews 10? One of the verses I love in Hebrews 10 that says, through one sacrifice, he has forever made perfect those he is making holy. This is how he views you when he looks at you. Is that how you view yourself? Walk in the purity that is yours in Christ Jesus. And as you do that, you're going to set people free. You're going to bring humanity back to the people that are around you. You're going to not objectify people anymore. You're going to bring healing and truth uh, as you're free to share a truth about your life to the people that are around you. And I promise you, you are going to start to see life and life to the full as you trust in Jesus more and more. I have one more verse to read to you um, in closing. And those are all my thoughts on David and Bathsheba. But I'd like to uh, invite the band back up and read a, uh, a short story here from Mark chapter 10 that uh, just doesn't really, it is relevant, all right? It's just not like a one-to-one to lust, okay? But just keep this in mind. What I want to do is I want to try and give some vision here just for a fundamental reality of a Christian that, uh, that doesn't leave you as best as I can right now to just be a person that just manages uh, its sin. I know there's a time and a place for obedience, but we've all been in situations where we're like, I'm just going to white knuckle and do what I... That's not ideal for the rest of your life to just be managing Um, And I think the way out of managing sin is to have a vision for, like, what you're actually aiming for. And I guess what I'm saying is I'm not aiming to just not sin. I'm aiming to be who I'm supposed to be. And as you are the person that you're supposed to be, the other stuff starts to fade away. Now, there's a conversation that Jesus has in Mark chapter 10 that I find legendary. The disciples are kind of arguing about who's, you know, important and most important. That's a conversation they're always having. And Jesus says to them in Mark chapter 10, you know, those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord their authority over each other. And their high officials exercise authority over them. It will not be so with you. As a verse I say almost on a daily basis, it will not be so, not, this, it will not be so with you. You're different than the world. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant. Whoever wants to be first must become the slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life up as a ransom for many. And as we are followers of Christ and his kingdom, we take this paradigm to as many different places of our lives as possible. Did you come to be served or to serve? When it comes to how you view what you do with your responsibilities and power, what you do with your sexuality. Are you here to be like the world and take every opportunity that you can? Take advantage of as many people and, and, and pictures and things that you can? Or we're gonna be a servant and start to see people as an opportunity to love and to restore. 
And maybe that's just something, I don't know if I'm just speaking to one person, but just to keep in your mind that this is who, I, this is who I'm trying to be. Someone who has come to serve and not be served. And as we finish today, I just want to invite you all to stand. And we decided that it would just be um, a great way to sort of um, transition this time to just sort of have a time of out loud prayer. Where um, in short sentences or something, you could just pray, you know, pray over this church. Pray over the men and women of this church, your brothers and sisters. Pray over this city. If there's a verse or a prophetic word of some sort that you just want to shout out, um, to be encouraging to one another. We got to do this together. We got to surround one another and make each other feel like we're in this together. And so I just want to encourage you to pray out whatever's on your heart um, and then we'll let the band take it from there.